I want to invite you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. I can imagine that many of us here have at some time or another heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then, after having done a bit of living, certain realities have popped up. Pressures, pains, betrayals, broken relationships, shattered dreams, untimely deaths, and sin, especially our own proven to be much deeper and darker and dogged than we had estimated. And so, where is this wonderful plan for my life? What happened to all those sweet potentialities God was supposed to be up to fulfilling in me and through me? And Moses wrote the book of Genesis to a people who were asking those very questions. After nearly 40 years of wandering they, they said, we left Egypt, we left slavery, is this what we get? Is this God's wonderful plan? Forty years in a wasteland? And perhaps their, their biggest question was, was that question, you know the big one? Um, why? Why did we leave? Why have such hard things happened? Why do we seem to be stuck? But God's good plan was not a plan for their ease or their comfort. Rather, God's plan was that they would take possession of a land. A land with big people and big cities with big walls. God's plan was to put His power and His presence on display by building a missional community that would be a blessing to all the nations. And the wise question they should have asked was not why, but how. How, oh God, do you want me to walk with you in fulfilling your plan and your purpose? Because you see, the, the how question leads us down Entirely different paths, right? Paths that are, are more relational. Paths that are wise. And so you see, no, no matter what God's specific or nuanced plan is for your life or for my life, it requires a certain level of, of stick You know, whether it's a professional skill or an advanced degree or marriage or friendship or parenting or Becoming a spiritual community that lives life together on mission. Each of these require a level of showing up and working at it. Endurance is an essential character trait of maturity. 
And growing up into mature Christ-likeness requires a pathway through death and resurrection. That is, dying to sin and to our old self and rising to new life in Him. So, endurance, perseverance, patience. These, these are the things that are required to journey through the tough stuff of life. And therefore, they are all fundamental traits of any mature daughter or son of the Heavenly Father. And so when God moved Moses to address the, the wilderness people, he breathed out this historical narrative that we're reading now in Genesis 37 to 50. And his purpose in the Joseph story is to break through one of the most challenging, hardest obstacles to our growth in grace. And that is resignation. I'll venture to say that if you, like the people of Israel, have at some times stepped out in joyful anticipation of fulfilling God's wonderful plan for your life and then found yourself in some wilderness, your deepest struggle has been some measure of anger, resentment, and resignation. And loved ones, resignation, just... It's an expression of a less than fully alive heart. God wrote Genesis 37 to 50 for you. And the best question you can ask him is not why. Why did all this happen? Why did it not happen the way I hoped? But rather, how? How, oh, Father in heaven, do you want me to walk with you in this hard, this empty place? Joseph learned how. And so let's ask our heavenly Father to teach us to. Let's pray and then we'll look at our text. And that's what we would ask of you now. Father in heaven, How would you be having us to walk alongside of you, walk with you, walk in your presence in hard places, in empty places, in dark places? How would you have us walk with you in suffering? How would you have us walk with you in such a way that we don't just throw in the towel, but that our hearts might remain fully alive and attentive to all that you're doing, all that you're up to, and not miss, not miss it. So we're asking for this grace to be detectives of divinity asking for this grace to be attentive to you. And we, uh, we ask you to train us and shape us, Lord, as you see fit to fulfill the specific plans and purposes for each life here. We trust, O oh God, that we are your workmanship and that we have been created and we have been born anew for works, good works that you have thought out, planned out, prepared for us in advance that when you have us ready, we will walk in those things. So uh, 
Teach us now, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, my, my goal in this sermon is to persuade you that, that just because life is hard and is not perhaps turning out the way you hoped, that does not mean that God is against you or that His wonderful plan for your life has been foiled. Let me say that again. The aim here is to persuade you, to encourage you, that just because life may be hard and may not be turning out exactly the way you hoped it would turn out, that does not mean that God is somehow against you. It doesn't mean that His wonderful plan for your life has been foiled. And here's why I say that. If ever anyone had a reason for saying that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, most assuredly it was Joseph. He was the favored son, born of Jacob's favorite wife. He had been pampered and spoiled by his father from his earliest childhood days. The fancy coat that he wore was symbolic of his preferred status in the family. Clearly, his earthly father His earthly father had a wonderful plan for Joseph's life. But also, while he was still a young man, the Lord himself sent to Joseph two prophetic dreams in which he was the center. But it was then that everything in Joseph's life seemed to crash and burn. His own brothers conspired to kill him. It was only when these Midianite traitors happened to be passing by did did the brothers adjust their plan into a profit-making scheme and sold Joseph to the merchants. They took him down to Egypt where he was purchased then by an Egyptian official named Potiphar. God's wonderful plan for Joseph's life seemed derailed, shattered, by a combination of the human jealousy and greed of others. Where was God at the crucial moments of Joseph's life when his dreams were being crushed? And it's not hard to imagine, is it? Joseph mulling over and over and over the same question on the way down to Egypt mulling over and over during those years as a household slave. Where was the Lord? Where is God in this? But here is where Moses, who is remarkably quiet in terms of explicitly drawing attention to God's presence and activity in this narrative, he informs us no less than five times in the opening verses of Genesis 39 that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success, causing him to find favor in relationship to his new boss. Follow along. Here's Genesis 39, 1 through 5. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. 
and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from that time, he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So, so God can be with you in Egypt. God can be with you in bondage. God can be with you in a set of frustrating circumstances where you are experiencing the difficult, painful consequences of other people's sins. And He can be with you in those situations just as much as He is with you in your dream location and doing your dream job with your dream people and everything going according to plan, according to your plan. So what is remarkable uh, probably here to take note of is that Joseph, <laughs> Joseph is embodying the very fulfillment of God's purpose to bless the nations precisely in this situation of trial and loss and innocent suffering. Look at verse 5 again. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in house and field. On, on all who had? On the Egyptian. The blessing of the Lord's on the Egyptian. And according to verse 3, Potiphar even recognized it. He was, he was aware. He saw that the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph's painful detour turned out to be the Lord's providential positioning for this particular Egyptian to see and to experience the presence and the power of God. Maybe you can relate to this. You have or may now be dealing with a particularly challenging situation. Perhaps you have been wronged. Some unexpected painful trial has changed your prospects for the future. You can imagine it condemning you to some life that you would have never dreamed for yourself. Whoa, what's God doing now? And it's of little use in those times to ask why. However, it can be quite productive to ask how. How, oh God? How do you want me to walk with you in your presence in this situation? He may be positioning you in order to use your innocent suffering as an occasion to connect you with someone who needs to see the Lord at work. You see, it's one thing, isn't it, to, uh, to proclaim the Lord's with us. When the sky is blue and the breeze is light, it is another thing to be able to confess the Lord is with us when the sky is dark and the wind just blew your house down. 
Last Saturday night, we had an out-of-town guest visit our this, this gathering that we have once a month called Fanning the Flame. And um, this friend had a what we would understand as a prophetic word of encouragement for a specific individual in the meeting regarding a specific situation. And the impression had to do with a circumstance that was like riding a roller coaster. Ups and downs and twists and sudden turns. And the encouragement was that this... Now, see, this person who shared the prophetic word did not know anything about this person's roller coaster experience in the moment. But the encouragement was that this wild and woolly life like the roller coaster was on a track, a track that God had made. They weren't off the track when they were twisting and turning. They, they were, it, the, the, of course, there were sharp corners and stomach churning drops, but that coaster was going precisely where God's track was taking it. Perhaps you too need to have that kind of encouragement. Such is the life of Joseph. As quickly as his roller coaster rose, it just came screaming back down even faster. And worst of all, his twist to fortune really had zero to do with any moral failure on his part. Rather, it was Joseph's faithful obedience to God. The very thing that seemed to cause his rise, which now seems to be the cause of his freefall in verse 7. Here's what it says. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now the, the temptation that presented itself here to Joseph was, it was sudden, it was real, it was direct. What we need to, to note is that Joseph is not being seduced by the desire or the availability of, of a beautiful, caring woman. He, the text says he's the attractive one. He's the attractive one, not Potiphar's wife. There is no allurement or mutual consent. She simply commands him, come to bed with me. It's not a request. It was a demand. Spoken in the same tone she might have used in telling him to take out the trash. Do the dishes. Wash the car. He's the slave. She's the mistress. The temptation here is... It's a different kind of compromise than we might think of at first glance. This is the kind of temptation one faces when someone in power over you threatens you to do what they want or suffer the consequences. It might be an employer who threatens to fire you. It might be an abusive family member who will subject you to some physical or emotional hurt if you do not do what they say. And in this kind of situation, it would have been easy for Joseph to rationalize uh, some 
you know, sinful compliance as the only real viable option. To give in would have been easy. It would have been self-protective. To refuse would almost certainly mean negative consequences. As has been famously said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But Joseph stood firm and he refuses. And in verses 8 and 9, here's what he says. Behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in the house than I am. He's made made me equal to him. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness And sin against God. How do I sin against God? So bringing God into the equation here reveals Joseph's awareness of the Lord's presence. God sees. God knows. God's there. Even God is there. God is present even in this lose-lose situation. And notice he, he doesn't just dust aside his faith when, when, when faced with the hard challenges of living in the real world. He saw clearly that his choice was between, okay, I can, I can satisfy the employer's wife by offending God, or I can satisfy God by offending my employer's wife. And to amplify the intensity of the situation, the text says in verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her. Sometimes we can, um, we can resist temptation once. Sometimes you can fight it off, resist temptation twice. Sometimes maybe three times. But sooner or later, Satan will wear us out with his perseverance. And when fighting sin, obviously it's, it's helpful to avoid situations where we have the opportunity to act on a temptation. But, but you see, that approach merely deals with external factors. It does not deal with the heart. And you see, ultimately, Joseph's only defense against sin was that He wanted to please God more than he wanted to experience pleasure or avoid pain. That's the real issue, isn't it? Difficult, painful, challenging circumstances. They are not the cause. They're not what causes us to sin. Other people who invite us and allure us to join them into wrongdoing. They are not the cause. They don't make us sin. It's it's my own heart that draws me into sin. It's It's what's in here that makes me sin. Because it wants to. It wants something more than it wants the pleasure of God. Whatever, whichever sin it is, whether it's wanting 
the approval of people or satisfying some lust or gossip or gluttony or you name it. The power of that temptation comes from the reality that even though you know it's wrong, I know it's wrong, you still want it more than you want God. And that sin offers promises a way to get it. Now, if the problem is with our hearts and not necessarily our circumstances, not necessarily other people, then resisting sin is going to require much more than simply keeping our distance from tempting situations. Again, that's useful, significant, helpful, important. But it requires a change in our hearts which is something we cannot do ourselves. Recognize that? We can't simply just decide to turn over a new leaf and stop sinning. We need to be given a new heart. We need to be given new desires. And this internal spiritual awakening is the very thing that is the beginning, the starting point of becoming a company of peoples. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 31 verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be or become my People. See, that's ultimately how Joseph was able to say no to such a, you know, it's a powerful temptation. In the same way God's presence, God's nearness, God's life in him is what enabled Joseph to prosper in all that he did for Potiphar. It was because the Lord was with him that he could actually say, how can I do such a thing and sin against God? And that, that thought didn't even, that didn't originate in his mind by itself. It came from the Lord. And the Lord was sovereign over every aspect of Joseph's life. Because you see, God's plan for Joseph's story included temptation. So that he could learn endurance. And so that he could be shaped and formed and grow up into a mature man. God could have easily made sure that Potiphar and his wife were, oh, just deliriously happily married. Or he could have made sure easily that Joseph had not been born with attractive form and appearance. But he didn't. Because part of Joseph's developmental process included facing and resisting temptation. Now, it's also important to register that doing the right thing didn't solve Joseph's problem. He's faced with the same temptation day after day. 
And it finally comes to a head in verse 12 when Potiphar's wife, she's She's waited until she's got him alone and she grabs his coat and she commands him again. And in that, that, that just absolute brazen, in-your-face temptation moment, there was only one thing left for, for him to do. And verse 12 says, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Not the first time Joseph's clothing was used against him, right? And Potiphar is left in this unenviable position of having to to decide on siding with a slave and exposing his wife as a liar or getting rid of Joseph. And he chose the latter. Though the fact that he merely had Joseph thrown in prison would suggest to us that he did not entirely believe her story. Because, you know, the the normal punishment for such an offense, slave in a household like this, it would have been immediate execution. We'll, We'll see that coming up in the next chapter. That's probably cold comfort to somebody like Joseph who finds himself now in prison and falsely accused, and judged guilty of a terrible crime that he did not commit. And further, he now faced another temptation. And this temptation may be greater than the other temptation. Perhaps more challenging. Namely, the temptation of feeling abandoned and forsaken by God. Not just feeling abandoned and forsaken by God, but abandoned and forsaken by God as a result of nothing that he had done wrong. Innocent suffering. Innocent suffering presents an enormous challenge. Ask Job. He'd resisted temptation, but the Lord, far from protecting him, stood by and let a great injustice be done. So this is what I get. Where is the encouraging nearness of God when you need Him most? Listen, it's, it's, um, it's those kind of circumstances that really reveal the, the truth about our hearts. If, if we're doing the right thing because we think that will earn God's favor or, or posture us in relationship to Him so that He will give us what we really want, then when our faithfulness or our sacrifice, or our obedience do not seem to produce, don't seem to work in drawing God's blessing, we will grow resentful and bitter and angry. It's what people mean when they say things like, you know, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. It didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? You didn't get what you wanted from God because you were doing all the right things? He was supposed to bless you? 
in response to all your faithfulness, all your goodness, all your righteousness? If we are obeying God in order to get something from God, then that something is what really is controlling our hearts, and it's not God. And, and yet for Joseph, there seems to have been no such resentment. Even though he found himself like at rock bottom, yet again, this is not the first time, yet again, he found that the Lord was there with him, yet again. This time in the, you know, you can only imagine the stench and darkness and hunger of an ancient prison. Look at verses 20 and 21. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the, did I, did I happen to mention the prison? The prison. God did not send another prophetic dream to explain now to Joseph how this next painful episode fit into the poema, the epic poem. That's the word translated workmanship in Ephesians 2.10. He didn't, he didn't send him another prophetic dream to kind of, okay, here, here's the map for you, buddy. This is all important. This is how, I'm, how I've written your story in order to shape and equip and position you for works prepared beforehand in which someday you're going to be walking. God did not do that. But it was all a part of God's developmental process for Joseph's great life work. If Joseph, think of it, if Joseph had not been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he would not have ended up in prison. If Joseph had not been put in prison, he would have never met Pharaoh's servants. If he had never met Pharaoh's servants in prison, he would have never been able to save Egypt and his own family when the time of famine came. Now it's, it's going to be much later on when, when Joseph is able to look back and connect all the dots and tra trace this intricate pattern of what God had been doing and accomplishing through his innocent suffering. But until that day, Joseph was left with nothing really but God's promise. The same promise made to Abraham, the same promise to, made to Isaac and to his own father Jacob. The promise being, I am with you. I'm with you. And this encouragement of God's faithful presence with Joseph in that dungeon was every bit as true as was God's presence with him in his moments of success and wise and effective leadership. Now, there's, there's one more thing I want to draw your attention to as it relates to this matter of the encouragement of God's nearness 
in innocent suffering. You see, the, the, the great danger of a text like Genesis 39 is that we can conclude that the whole purpose is to hold up this individual as somebody that we're to emulate. We all want to emulate Joseph's success in resisting temptation. Oh, to be a Joseph. Probably have a Sunday school song to that effect. We too want to be a Joseph in our ability to say no to sin in the most trying circumstances. In our daily lives, are we not more likely to identify with Judah? Chapter 38. Judah's lack of self-control than we are to identify with Joseph's victory over temptation. Here's where we can totally miss the point of this text. Now listen carefully. God was not at work in Joseph's life because he obeyed God and resisted temptation and absent from Judah's life because Judah gave in to temptation and fell into sin. That's our tendency, right? We just kind of, we're, we're sort of hardwired into our, our framework of thinking. I'm going to say it again. God was not at work in Joseph's life because he obeyed God and resisted temptation. And God was not absent from Judah's life because he gave in to temptation and fell into sin. We think God surely must have loved Joseph and approved of Joseph because he's such a hero. And he must have been so deeply disappointed in Judah because he's such a loser. That's the problem. When we, we transfer that framework of thinking then on our own experience... God really loves us when we obey and we resist temptation. And God does not like us so much. At least he's profoundly disappointed us when we sin. But here's the lesson that is central to Joseph's story. God uses things that he hates to accomplish goals that he loves. You, you, you all think that I practice this, don't you? It's just the Lord's kindness. Haven't been interrupted mid-sentence too many times. God uses things that he hates to accomplish goals that he loves. See, God is not just at work in and through Joseph. God is at work in and through Judah as well. In fact, the Messiah is going to come through Judah. And his line. The Lord knew exactly what was going to happen when he sovereignly brought both Judah and Joseph into temptation. He knew that by his grace, Joseph would remember his presence, 
be mindful of his presence and stand. And he knew that Judah would forget his presence and fall. And God would use both of these events. He would superintend over both of these events in such a way to accomplish his holy purposes. Joseph would stand before us as a living, breathing example of 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And meanwhile, Judah, Judah, He's going to stand forever before us as a living, breathing example of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9. My grace is sufficient even for you. Even you. You see, someone who sins and falls even spectacularly can still be incorporated into the company of God's people. Forgiven. Sin atoned for. Condemnation removed. Redeemed. Transformed. And have a central role in the plan and purpose of God. Loved ones, Joseph's God-given prophetic dreams, they were never simply about personal success and preeminence in his family. They were about Joseph becoming a signpost to the gospel. They were a means by which God's promise to make Abraham's seed into a spiritual community to bless the nations would be fulfilled. The Lord was with Joseph, enabling him to be a blessing to Egyptians in the midst of undeserved hurt and betrayal and innocent suffering and profound temptation, not simply so that he could be some heroic example for us to imitate, it was so he could be a foreshadow to the coming Christ. It was so he could point us, his life would point us to Jesus. Jesus is the only sinless innocent man and the only one who has ever suffered entirely, completely, without any fault of his own. The Spirit is the one that led Jesus into the wilderness to face the full force of Satan's assault and he resisted perfectly. Joseph might have resisted temptation in Genesis 39. He was not sinless. He was far from perfect. There were times when Joseph lost hope and gave in to self-pity and anger and soul-crushing resignation. There were no doubt times when Joseph did not say, oh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The purpose of Genesis 39 is not to get us to ask ourselves in our darkest hours, oh, what would Joseph do? The purpose of this text is to encourage us to ponder and to praise what Jesus in His innocent suffering has accomplished in our place. Where was God? Where was God's encouraging presence on the day that Jesus suffered on the cross? This is staggering. 
It's at the cross that the Father allowed the Son to be falsely accused and falsely condemned and sinfully abused and murdered. And in that terrible hour, the Father was not with Jesus so that He might be with us forever. Jesus was bearing our curse. And as a result, the penalty for all those times we have joined Judah in throwing ourselves headlong into sin was paid in full. And in its place, we've now been credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ who by God's grace empowered faith stood, withstood every temptation in our place. It's by His wounds that we're healed. And we are dressed in His righteous coat. And our Heavenly Father's smile rests upon us today and forever.